Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Greetings, you've landed at the VUC Communications and VoIP community. We would like to thank Simwood.com for their support. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSIP.com. You can go to GetOnSIP.com for a URL people can click to call you. We've been privileged over the last five years using the best conference bridge on the planet. Yes, I'm talking about ZipDX.com, full-color, full-featured, full-HD conference bridge. Our website, VUC.me on the web, is hosted by Bluehost.com. And our worldwide local rate dial-ins are from Vox.com. And as you can see, this is VUC 557. Special guest, person you've never heard of before in the VoIP world, Mark Spencer. Hey, Mark, good to see you again after all these years. Yeah, good to see you too, Andy. Speaking of Mark, yeah. Speaking of Mark and Astrakhan, aren't we? Uh, can we get the slide? There we go. October thirteenth to fifteenth in Orlando, Florida. Our friends, many people at least who I know and like personally, are going to be at Astrakhan. And uh, one of those is, of course, Mark himself. Mark has a question. He asked Wiki Geek. I'm going to put Tim on. He's going to unmute, and we're going to find out what that's all about before we get moving here. So, Cranky Geek's uh, day in San Francisco in office uh, talking about the current best practice and future of WebRTC, and I get to do something stupid there as a kind of finish <laughs> thing. I to a parrot, and this year... I'm not sure, but I think it may involve Lego. Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a fun day, and you get to hear about from people like Microsoft where they see WebRTC going and what the latest stuff is. So um, it's a good good place to uh, to find that stuff. And I think it's free, whether it's sold out or not. I have not. so that's Cranky Geek with a K, and it's next Friday, the 11th of September. And that brings us to Tad Hack. We should mention it, even though I don't. I don't think we have a slide. Somebody who knows James would be the one who knows when the next Tad Hack is. Yeah, it's the first weekend in October in Chicago at the Illinois Institute. And right after that uh, so, is another uh, the other thing in Illinois at the university. Yeah, it's the IIT Real Time Communications uh, event, and for another three days, and then. Uh, our team will be getting on a jet plane and whizzing down to Orlando so that we can enjoy Astrakhan. Yay! Brings us back to Mark. Mark, um, I'm not going to introduce you and talk about asterisk and all that, but I do want to ask you some silly questions of which I know the answer already. One of them is, when did you start flying? I started in uh, 2007. And what what made you want to fly, first of all? Was that a lifetime dream, or did you go, well, I'm PBX, now I'm going to fly? Well, uh, I had have always kind of had an interest in aviation, but uh, I didn't think it was particularly approachable. And uh, ended up when we brought on uh, Danny Windham, our CEO, and Steve Harvey, our VP of Sales at Digium. They were both pilots. After a couple of trips with them, I was like, man, I really want to do this. I mean, uh, actually, after flying with Danny, I was like, I'd really like to be able to do this. And after flying with Steve, I was like, well, 
he can do this. I can. <laughs> That's great. great story. Uh, I actually, uh, what, somebody lent me, I, I did the same thing. I was out with somebody on a very small plane, and I said, boy, this is really cool. I'd like to. And he lent me the manual to start studying for the license, and I looked at about five pages and go, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. So it's it's not trivial stuff, but I guess if strong desire, that's what happens. Uh, Mark, so you had been flying all those years before the spark for uh, uh, setting the world of avionics came to you. Now, let's hear a little bit about that. How did that come to How did that come to pass? Well, uh, I started learning at kind of an interesting time where generally, when we speak about general aviation, we're talking about essentially everything other than military and commercial aviation. So this is not just private flyers who use their aircraft for business or, uh, you know, if you need to get from one hospital to another and you're not in a condition that you can go on um, commercial flights, that's all aviation. And in those aircraft, uh, you were just kind of starting to get into where you were transitioning from round dials that were literally were mechanical gauges to uh, what we refer to as a glass cockpit, which is essentially a computer screen in which a computer drives all this. And uh, over the last several years, it's really clear to me that uh, there's this kind of transition going on from these systems being hardware systems to being more software-based systems, and yet they're sold as hardware, and they have all the same limitations uh, of hardware. There's a lot of opportunity where when you integrate these systems together, you can get higher levels of safety, a uh, uh, great deal of reduced workload for pilots, and yet, because of this proprietary nature, there's not a whole lot of interoperability in these systems. And by the way, they're very expensive, and they have a very technical audience. And, and I'm sitting here going, gosh, this, this story sounds really familiar. I've seen this before. And, uh, and so one day, I just sort of said, all right, all right, you know, I got to go try to see what I can do with this. I mean, it's a much smaller market, than, but the setup was so similar to uh, the setup in telecom that led to Asterisk's success that it, it felt like it would be a fun uh, technical project to kind of go after whether or not there was uh, any money in it or not. Now, how does this get started? Um, obviously, you send the general. It's clear that the general idea is here you've got a bunch. It's, it's just like nautical, by the way. You've got the radar and the, you know all of the things, the same setup, really. In fact, you might want to go to... <laughs> You know, a guy buys a boat for $700,000, and he's got probably uh, 200k in that equipment. Uh, as a matter of fact, what kind of pricing do these system systems, what kind of thing does that cost compared to the cost of the aircraft? That's a really good question. Uh, so in a typical general aviation, the avionics cost uh, today is probably about a third of the cost of the airframe. So about um, a third is in... The power plants have in the avionics, and the third in kind of the rest of everything else that goes in the airplane. I was actually at a conference here in Huntsville yesterday, and for the military, uh, their studies show that 80% of the cost of developing a new aircraft is software. 80% of the development cost of a new airplane is software. And it just, it's mind-boggling to think about. Now, uh, one thing, the nature of how you develop and test software in the aviation world typically is very different from how you do it 
uh, in just about any other because of the safety criticality. But those techniques have essentially not changed in years and years and years. Um, typically, you have a list of requirements, high-level requirements, and then from those you derive low-level requirements, and then from there you derive software, and every code has to tie back to a, uh, a low-level requirement, which itself goes back to high-level requirement, and then you have to have a test suite that shows that you have tested every statement in your code. In some cases, you have to test every portion of you know, so if you have an if A or B, you have to show for every value of A or B that you have tested that scenario from the outside, you know, hooking this boxers and testing it. And so what happens is that even though the vast majority of the errors come in during the specification phase, so that, you know, they're incomplete or there are, you know, problems with what's being specified, you don't discover those errors until you know, a big chunk of them, probably about a, don't get discovered until you're actually out there running this in the real world. And now, because of all this testing, that represents about 70% cost of the development of the software is to fix that 20% of the bugs that occur at the very end of the process. So what we're trying to do now is build the software essentially the same way you do asterisk, go, you know, write this stuff, and then kind of back in a baseline of the requirements ought to be, and then from there, uh, go worry about getting it certified. And the nice thing is that here in the U.S., we have a category called built airplanes. And in the amateur built world, you don't, there are no requirements for the software or the hardware. If you, you know, decide you want to take the engine out of your car, plane, so why, you know, if that's uh, that's your choice. You can go do that, and uh, you know it's under you are the manufacturer, so you get to decide what all you're going to put in there. So from that way, I can run this airplane uh, today on six Raspberry Pis and two embedded Linux boxes, uh, off the software as I go along, and of course I've got backup systems in place so that none of my stuff really has to work for the airplane to be able to fly. Right. Uh, I was just touching on a point I was just about to ask about, which is that, sure, you can... Look, I started um, with like a Pentium 1, my first asterisk, uh, and, you know, the thing would answer the phone. It worked fine. In fact, I don't think it ever got uh, updated past Pentium 3, and it, it took care of our small business and didn't have a problem. However, if the thing died, you know, nobody was going to fall out of the sky. Uh, now we're talking about beyond your testing. Obviously, this stuff's got to work. And the, the question I had for you was: once you're done with the, that's not critical. In other words, it's a critical testing, but not a life, uh, uh, life or death. When you're going to build the system on hardware, you've got certain uh, MTBF ratings and so on. Can we talk a little about that? You, so you won't, you go out. You've got the thing now. You've got it where you want it. You need to test it in the real world for for a product. Where are you finding? How do you go about finding? the proper hardware to run this, the displays and whatever, sensors, all of that stuff? So uh, right now I've been using grade displays that are designed to be vibration resistant and light temperature. But this is really different from how typical avionics work. A typical avionics box is highly integrated. So you have a you know big cannon plug on the back with you know 
hundred different wires that bring in all these different signals. There's a processor in there that runs software that has been certified under something called DO178, and there are these different levels A through E. And uh, it's also tested under something called DO160, which is the environmental rules. And based on where in the airplane it is, how critical, they have this conality. So um, you can think of the least critical software as being if it fails, nobody really cares. So for example, the entertainment system uh, in the airplane, you guys, I mean, how many times have you been on an airplane and it doesn't work, right? That's, that's very common. That, essentially, you don't have to, to have any level certification for that. So that's level E. Other extreme end, you have the, if this fails, everybody's going to die, right? And that's level A. That's the most criticality. And in the middle, you have these things like, well, if it fails, there might be some discomfort or there might be increased workload for the pilot. And that kind of fills out the other uh, criticality levels uh, that go in there. And based on that, they for what kind of software testing you have to do, uh, whether it's just statement level or whether it's, you know, literally down to every byte of the compiled binary that has to be but again, you know, the, the problem with this, all this stuff is that it's it's not the typically that you didn't, you know, you messed up a, an error code. The vast majority of these errors that are coming in are errors that are based on the requirements not being right or something being omitted from the requirements. Interesting. We need to uh, take a break and find out if anybody else has any questions. Among our so I'm, I'm, I'm finding this amazing uh, territory. I, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but I spent some while um, at the European Space Agency where all of the stuff that, uh, that ran, obviously, were going to launch had to be developed with strict specifications and waterfall model, and everything had to be checked back against the spec. And, and when you realized the spec, it was like this disastrously long thing about going back and trying to change it. And, you know, that was impossible. So it's all amazingly familiar, and it's like still like that. I, I haven't been in that world for 20 years now, so, and I don't miss it. Right, and the, there are challenges. So, for example, for, with a criticality level greater than D, uh, which essentially is it's a minor, you know, it's an inconvenience if it fails, but that, you know, a mobile inconvenience. Anything worse than that, we have to have at least 100% safety coverage, and that gets rid of essentially uh, Linux. Now Linux is gone, you have to get an operating system that is written to a specification that you can uh, turn in, and that's a, that's a big stack and a lot of cost. But again, the experimental world, don't have to worry about that. We can uh, run this stuff on Linux. But the, even, even running it on Linux, just the way the software works is very different. Very mentality. I mean, Asterisk has all kinds of threads and there's all kinds of you know locks that go in and you can have deadlocks and things like that and none of that happens. So each piece of software is a monolithic piece of software, single threaded and no dynamic memory allocation after the initialization. So the way you write software is like the way you wrote software when you were first learning C and you know computer science 101. Totally deterministic all you know arrays and you know, there's you don't have uh, linked list typically unless it's something that you were to load at the very beginning and never have to address it again so it's it's really from a software development perspective it's fun uh, as a constraint to have to work in the 
in this environment it makes it a lot more challenging. Now, the good news is that so many of these things, like the, what drives the display and how you process this data, is just stuff hasn't changed in 30, 40 years. So you have a Raspberry Pi. I mean, that's a that's an unbelievable amount of computational horsepower that's available to you. Uh, and the other thing that this is that once everything is just data on a data bus, now you can provide a tremendous improvement to safety just by all these different bits of data together. So comparing not just the airspeed as sensed by one sensor versus another, but how does that compare to your own speed? And how does that compare to the angle of attack that you're reading? And you know all these other sensors where you know there are relationships that exist between them, well, now we can provide the best data available to them. And that, that is a radically different concept. I mean, right now, you know, if I'm flying the Eclipse jet, uh, I'm that. It's that guy kind of over there, all right? Uh, that guy, if, if there's an airspeed difference between one sensor, you just get a message that says, hey, airspeed disagree, and the autopilot kicks off, and it's like, you go fly the airplane now. And obviously, to me, the computer can figure out which one's bad because it's got a lot more sensors that can uh, make that determination and, you know, keep the autopilot on to where you're not all of a sudden given this, this uh, high workload environment. Follow-up there? So, so that all sounds a bit like what you have to use to, to, to deal with the Arduino. It's like single-threaded, um, like linear execution, or and you can't allocate it because there probably isn't memory for it anyway. And you know, no, um, although I, I, I actually find programming Arduino too much like hard work. Um, you know, so are you doing all this in C, or, or are you coming to that in a minute? I oh yeah, all this is in C. Well, let me back up. For the visuals, let me, let me say this. Everything that actually runs on this on the system is written in C. But some of the visuals are created with Python scripts, the images, and then those images are turned into textures. And those textures are implemented on the screen with OpenGL with clipping and rotation. But you have very little, what you would think of as as OpenGL, you know, you don't have shaders and stuff like that, because that, that gets rid of the, So you've got very primitive OpenGL. There's a the safety critical subset, which is based on OpenGL 1.3. You know, it's really, really basic uh, stuff, but with the right build environment, you can make it where you can do what look like really cool things, pretty primitive uh, elements. And part of that is because memory now is so cheap. So it doesn't matter that we have, you know, a texture that might be, uh, you know, 64, 128K of memory that you could draw with 12 OpenGL statements because memory is so cheap that it doesn't matter. It's just better memory so that you have less complexity in your software to have to test. So, so do you, speaking of memory, do you have any of those kind of issues where, I know when Space Agency had the thing where, you couldn't launch uh, anything with high density memory in it because it was vulnerable to cosmic ray. Um, you know, when you get down below, but you end up needing to shield the thing um, from cosmic rays, otherwise you get bit rot. Um, is that something that, like, are there equivalent problems that you have to tackle in, in airframe space, or is that, like, not, not an issue? 
Well, not exactly, but if you, uh, you know, we, we've heard of uh, a bit error in, in memory. I forget what the term is when a, a bit of memory can randomly change. Uh, remember the name of that? That uh, phenomenon right off the top of my head. But anyway, there is uh, always a risk that a bit of memory may change. So in, in the implementation of your choice, uh, I would prefer to use error correcting memory, but that is uh, uh, oftentimes challenging to find. At least a Raspberry Pi. Quick question. So are, are there mechanical drives for disk space or is it solid state? Everything now is solid state with uh, SD cards. Now, the, the Pies are not the long-term solution. There are companies that make somewhat equivalent products, but the Pie is so easy for uh, that it's, it's really a, a great tool. I wish that the, uh, the Pie was available as an a, uh, industrial module version of the Pie, but that industrial module is an older version of the Pie that just doesn't have the horsepower that we need. So we're having alternatives from uh, from other companies that are industrial grade and and uh, uh, vibration resistant and so on. And the, the sensors, obviously, I don't know anything about aviation, but I'm assuming there's a bunch of sensors to tell positions of elements and stuff on the plane. That stuff already exists, so you don't have to worry about that. That's all certified and all that, right? Correct. Uh, we're we're on the since it's an experimental airplane, we don't really gain a whole lot of benefit from using certified versions of it. So we typically are using uh, non-certified that, but yes, that year does already exist, and we have found vendors that are willing to share their protocols for uh, all of the key elements for navigation, communication, the sensors that detect the orientation of the airplane and the airspeed and altitude. So we talk RS-232 to those, and we bring this common virtual or physical Ethernet bus, and the beauty of that is that you can have very small, simple programs that all communicate with each other over a control And then they, the actual software can live on any computer anywhere, and it doesn't make any difference within the network. Okay. Yeah, what do the vendors actually uh, think about this? Uh, are they, uh, what reaction are you getting from the established industry, I guess, if any? So when you say vendors, do you mean the avionics vendors, or do you mean the... Uh, well, Aircraft. From sensor vendors through avionics up to the aircraft folks. So the large avionics manufacturers, this is so far away from any level of anything else. So th this is like, it'd be like asterisk in 2000 and then going and asking Nortel what they would think about this. I mean, I remember in early asterisk days, I'd go to trade shows and, and, and it was like, oh, look, there's, you know, the cute little asterisk guy doing his little open source PBX. You know, they didn't really take the project very seriously, and that avionics vendors are. But some of the smaller avionics vendors, I think, recognize the opportunity that this has to make uh, the market more competitive to where, uh, you know, just like you go to the computer store and you can buy whoever's computer and whoever's printer, and you know they're more than likely going to work with uh, That model is now possible uh, if this technology really takes off because you can just develop effectively the driver piece of software to, to connect your element with the rest of this Ethernet bus and then you're set. 
Hey, we are having some breakup issues apparently on ZipGX. I, I think it was just Michael walking away on his Bluetooth headset. He's out of range. I forgot about the other piece. The other piece was he said, what about the aircraft? Now, that is a very interesting story because the aircraft manufacturers are very excited about this. Uh, I've even got one aircraft manufacturer that's uh, been wanting to follow up with this very uh, aggressively because the, the avionics vendors, once you're kind of designed into the airplane, uh, they really own that experience, and it's extremely difficult to uh, to get uh, to get that replaced. You know, it's it's just it's almost impossible. So as a result, uh, it's been extremely easy to the aircraft vendors, even though I'm, I'm really, really early on for what most of them need, because most aircraft vendors need certified gear. There are only one category of our light sport for which the certification would not be required. Okay, a different type of question for me. Is there an opportunity here to integrate this, other devices, into the aircraft? You come along with your personal device and plug it in. Is that going to be allowed? We prefer you have it on airplane mode. That, that's actually a good question. Uh, it turns out that uh, the, because the mobile devices are largely unregulated, provided that they don't physically connect, uh, that whole area has seen a tremendous amount of innovation to where what you have on typical Android is a lot more powerful than what you have in the airplane in terms of a moving map. There are even people who make mounts that you can put inside the airplane. You house your device in, but as long as but once you physically connect it up to the airplane, now you've got to get uh, some level of certification. So can you get away with yeah? What I was going to say, a wireless connection. Yeah. So that's what's happened recently. Is people have made devices. They uh, Garmin has have added software that is certified into their avionics that can talk to the mobile devices to pass the data back and forth. And other people have made little standalone devices that, you know, grab weather and traffic that are not certified, that again, don't really attach to the airplane. They put it on the, on the dash, like a portable GPS would, that can detect the presence of other airplanes and give you uh, what the weather is and so on. Yeah, you, know, you can only just sit on the bus and monitor it and do a, kind of like a packet capture on the bus, um, you could probably extract a whole load of really useful get Once you are physically connected up, you still have to get some level of certifications. And, and that, it, it's not like a, the same level of certification for every product. It's, there's a, it's kind of tiered to, based on where the product is, again, and how critical its operation is. It's not a very critical element, then essentially your certification is going to mainly be focused around uh, proving that it doesn't impair the operation of the airplane, that it's a passive. So, so yeah. how far have you gone? How, how far have I gotten? Yeah, yeah what works? It's got an airplane has about 100 hours flying on it. It's got the all the primary flight instruments, plus it has uh, a, a primitive moving map. Uh, the uh, on the right there, which you see, are actually round dial emulations. So, for people who uh, prefer their data to be represented as red, is available as well. 
But there's still a lot of work on how all this stuff integrates together and getting some of the algorithms tweaked uh, that still has to take place. Anyone out there in ZipDX? Anyone out there in ZipDX Zip land have any questions? I'm getting some. Okay, my, uh, Michael okay, has been showing some. This echo is. His hardwiring my brain to want to repeat. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Who's getting that back? Who's getting that I think back? that's me. It's coming from Mark. It's coming from Mark. It looks like it's coming. Yeah, no, I don't know how that happened, Mark, but uh, I'm just going to... Uh, I, I was actually going to ask for more questions. We were looking... Uh, let's see. I'm looking, I'm looking at IRC to see if anybody has said anything there. There's, there's a lot of talk. By the way, Duffett is with us, I see. Um, but I haven't seen any actual questions. Uh, we could talk about security, I guess, because that's been big time in the news. Let me unmute you, and you can uh, hold forth <laughs> if I can figure out where the unmute is. Oh, you have to unmute yourself, Mark. I had to mute you because of the echo, but go ahead and uh, talk about uh, You must have been thinking about that. You must have been thinking about that. Well, once you're on Ethernet, of course, there's a, uh, a lot of opportunity that you can implement security. But typically, the security like this is that there is no connectivity to the outside world, right? I, mean, I have to physically run Ethernet cables into my uh, setup here to be able to get in there. We talked about these different criticality levels. And typically, you cannot have a network which connects uh, software of different criticality in any way to be able to get data from one side to the other, That's uh, other than obviously going from a more aggressive level to a less critical level. Okay, so there's no... There's no... Got to have some... How did... Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know how that suddenly started. That's what's odd. Uh, obviously, there, there's no public path in, and uh, James's comment about like things like uh, iPhones and so on, if that's through Bluetooth, obviously, we're talking small aviation, so general aviation, unless you were on a, um, a private corporate with, uh, I don't know, 10 people or something, and there's actually one mole in there that's trying to kill everybody, which is not going to be common. But yeah, it's, so that's not too much... Um, other than yeah, that, just, thought, just imagine your Mujahideen getting on the plane armed with his iPhone trying to save that <laughs> aircraft. One of the things to keep in mind is that typically if you have Wi-Fi in the airplane, that is not going to be connected to the aircraft systems. Certainly not any of you to go the opposite direction. Right, for sure. Right, for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what this, why this has started. Uh, on my end, I've got like uh, six different internet connections, and none of them are very strong. Mark, uh, a quick uh, comment happened to me once that you might get a kick out of. We were flying from um, Chicago to Paris, so we take off, and the you know nah, we're at the level, and then all of a sudden it starts going down, and then it goes back up and redresses itself. The pilot said, ladies and gentlemen, 
And I mean, it was really noticeable. You may have noticed that we lost a little altitude and we came right back up. Um, so there's no problem at all. And we're like over halfway between the coast from Chicago. And then the thing happened again and the lights are dimming and the plane starts to go down, but in a significant way, like, everybody's looking, you know, no, there's nothing. And then, of course, the flight crew is, you know, completely ignoring it, pretending everything's fine. Finally, uh, the pilot came back on. He said, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot once again. Um, we did lose one alternator, but um, we have two, so don't worry. We're going to have to turn back to Chicago because only a maniac would try to cross the Atlantic with one alternator. And my conclusion on that was that the co-pilot was going, nah, go for it. So, uh, we, so uh, that, that speaks well, to that's failures. Failure, failure would not cause you to... To descend, uh, but, but you typically it's actually kind of a, a difference in uh, in philosophy. So there's a philosophy called fail safe, which means that if there's a failure, you can you know, safely continue the rest of the flight and land. And then there's fail op, which is if it fails, you can still continue to go and operate the aircraft. So as an example, 47 has four engines, and if you lose one, it's actually not even considered an emergency. It's considered an anomaly. You have to lose two engines on a 747 port. So it's in most aircraft that are twin engine or single engine, for that matter. If you lose an engine, it is considered an emergency. But uh, I, uh, there, there actually, um, there was a, a, a situation not entirely dissimilar to what you described in which some people actually were injured by how aggressively the descent occurred was it turned out to be a software problem in the, the flight control computer that had, the software hadn't been touched in 30 years, a unique set of inputs that came from uh, the altitude sensor that was not, didn't line up with any of the specification, and it caused the, the, the plane to believe that it was uh, in a stall condition and insert to push the stick forward to prevent a, a stall. I just had a thought. Had a th uh, uh, Mark, does your avionics system talk with a voice? And if it does, I can guess who the voice is. We haven't gotten to the point of doing the, the voiceovers yet, but yes, of course, you know who will be the first person that will ping for just pull up, pull up. <laughs> Stop yawning on me. Weasels have eaten my engine system. <laughs> so as a result of all this flying and knowing more about how it works internally, are you uh, somebody who is much more relaxed on commercial flights or, or do you absolutely hate being and, and not being in control of the experience now? I don't like being unplugged from what's going on. I mean, when you're, even if you're riding in a lighter, hearing the air traffic control stuff, you're hearing what the pilots are talking about, any buzzers or alerts, and you're very plugged in, so you know what's going on and what everybody's feeling. But when you're learning, you don't know why you're, you know, delayed or why you're going, you know, they have to go around, what was the cause for the go around and so on. It is quiet when, when things are muted, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, we're trying. We've we've actually gotten a great sync. Now we could do it. I'd be muting himself every time, like a, like a real pro. You know that not all guests could manage. That. No, not all guests could manage that. So the other thing is, Mark, you started with obviously the tiniest of commercial of uh, excuse me of private planes. You started on probably a Cessna. I'm going to guess, but whatever. What was the Cessna? I started learning. Let's and you've moved up. Uh, talk. Let's talk a little about that and which what what planes, what aircraft are these systems appropriate for? What is the target of the systems you're developing now? I think again, it's dissimilar from asterisk. It's really going to depend upon the applications that the customers want to put it in. But the bigger the airplanes are in certain categories, then they will require a certification. Anything that's six thousand pounds or less. Uh, has a much easier time than things that are over 6,000 pounds. And anything that carries, you know, uh, you know, transport category is going to be even more challenging to get to. But the FAA in the U.S. is at least beginning to realize that have safety elements that are being lost because uh, people are not willing to go through the effort that it takes to get this technology certified that a lot of more accidents might be prevented by having the safety available than are stopped by uh, the onerous complexity we're associated with the certification process. Okay, all through this, Michael has been showing some images, but I think we need to put the focus on Michael and uh, let's get you to comment maybe based on what he's showing. So this is kind of Michael's choice unless he had a way to show everything and select. Well, why don't we go ahead and do that? So do I just look down in the little film strip to see what he's showing? You you can actually click you on actually click, click on it. On click it on and it. you'll see it full screen. You'll see it full screen. Okay, gentlemen. Okay, gentlemen. My apologies to everybody on And you're siloed again, Michael. So this is called a primary flight display. What you're typically looking at, it shows an artificial horizon so that if you were in the clouds, you could see it. Uh, and then you have the altimeter on the right-hand side, and then what's called the vertical speed indicator, and some just general information about your transponder and your radios. The sound dials over here. Uh, so this is uh, for people who prefer the uh, the version of data display. Uh, this looks like what the old school instruments would have looked like. Well, I suppose that, that's, well, one, I suppose of that's one of the problems. Um, very rapidly change it from the super modern to the old fashioned for the old timers. Yeah, Mar, I'm curious about this. Curious uh, about oops. <laughs> okay, so maybe people ha do have preferences. Are there going to be templates? I mean, obviously, every. I'm sorry, I say obviously every 20 seconds. Every layer that you add, possible problem later. So maybe you don't want to add templates as if this was an Android watch, for example, where people are... I'm not showing you. When you have a right. thing like so this... Go ahead. I think you understood the question. I think you understood the question. Right. The locations of everything are hard-coded in, but it's easy to file, and then you could retest your software if you needed to, uh, to do that. But, yeah, everything... Again, it's kind of built in a different way. You, you want it to the same way every single time. You want to, every, every new feature you add has to be tested. So 
uh, a lot of times companies will just delete features and have to go through the process of testing them. Yeah, there's no question. This is very different from most things we might attempt in software. Who else has questions? I'm going to look at IRC and see if there's anything, but if anyone has been hesitating, please go ahead and type it into IRC. Or R6, toggle your mute state on ZipDX, which we're also connected to, and uh, ask your question there. I'm not looking at who is connected, but Maxim might be there, and he's a potential flyer someday. Uh, anybody else who has questions, go ahead. Otherwise, we'll go back. I'll dive it, I'll dive it again. Uh, the intent to uh, do something for rotary wing aircraft as well as fixed wing. Uh, well, my focus has been on the fixed wing, but actually here in rotary wing is uh, the bigger focus uh, in terms of companies that are here. So uh, we actually are going after a contract that's... Uh, targeted at uh, rotary wing right now, but no telling if we'll get it or not. Well, that'll give you an excuse to get yet another new aircraft. Probably be installing it on somebody else's. You don't have any taste for rotary wing, Mark? You personally, you wouldn't want to fly one? Or have you? Fly one. Or have you? Uh, I've flown one a couple times, and uh, it's... I don't know, I, I think it's... I kind of go back and forth between it'd be really fun to learn how to do it and... And, and when you understand how complicated a helicopter is as compared with an airplane, it's also kind of scary. That's really interesting. I never really thought about that. Do we, Michael, do we have other images we can mark to comment? Or have we seen most of uh, what works in this format? Did we? Yeah, did we get to this diagram? No, we've me... done this diagram yet, have we? Go ahead, Mark. All right, well, this is the uh, overall architecture of the system. Uh, so is Data Acquisition Unit. By the way, in aviation, we love acronyms. Uh, I guess kind of like a lot of government stuff. The PFD is the primary flight display we talked about in aircraft computer system. Uh, and in these uh, uh, ACSs, you have a virtual Ethernet bus, which is literally a bunch of alias Ethernets. And these applications gets its own IP address and sends out its data and receives its data. And it discards anything that it doesn't care about. And the data it does care about, it takes. And whatever it needs to put out, it puts out on the Ultimately, this bus will have to be deterministic. So it would look like TDM, uh, but on Ethernet. So you'd have kind of a trigger that goes out, and then everybody can allot a time slot. But for now, uh, we just let a free run on UDP because... Uh, it's more interesting to see how it behaves in the, an environment where you can have loss. I, I, I have a question there, Mark. Do you, have you looked at other other protocols like SCTP as a halfway house where you've got reliable delivery of messages, so you keep, you keep the message boundaries? Well, keep in mind... On the one hand, the loss of a message is not actually a very critical thing because this is all stateless, so you're getting new messages with the same data uh, very frequently. But the other thing that's big about it is you shouldn't have any loss at all because you, in a deterministic system, you'll never have multiple devices communicating at the same time. So even if you look at... Uh, the version of Ethernet Sorry, I didn't hear that. <laughs> no, that. <laughs> no, that. that was ZipDX. Anyway, uh, 
Yeah. The version of Ethernet that's used in the A380 is fully deterministic, so you can't have collisions. It's essentially only using Ethernet as a physical bus because it's very cheap and readily accessible. So it's kind of more so like, kind a, of more like a, a green technology. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, we have redundancy, so you've got Ethernet. Okay. I have to run here in a minute. Do we have any other questions? No, I think we've pretty much... No, I think we've pretty much... I, I've got one I've question got about one building question. the mental the aircraft. Did you, did you actually make the thing yourself, or did you pay somebody else to do it? How did that is there any Lego involved? Yes, Andy is there. Yes, Andy. Well, uh, Tad and I uh, built the aircraft uh, ourselves, and the rule here is for it to be an amateur-built aircraft, at least 51% to be built by amateurs. That is, you cannot pay the people to do it. So uh, I can do it, Tag can do it. You know, if Randy was over here, he can do it. But he can do it or it's not a amateur-built airplane. But as long as you do 51% of it, then you can register as amateur-built. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. I know you're busy. you got a million things you're doing, including missing a furniture delivery. But uh, we're all pleased to see you, and you can you can probably I assume you're going to Mark. So, so yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, we'll see you guys there. Okay, great. That was Mark Spencer, and you'll see him at Astrocon as well as probably Mr. Bodie, Anton, Andy Smith, I think, uh, and many many other. David Duffett will be there. A lot of, if not all of the Digium crew will be there, and uh, Allison. And Allison, yes. Oh, I don't have my soundboard up to give the look to the skies, look to the skies for a warning. But Allison will be there. It's only Mark. I didn't do, didn't do a very good job at that either. Anyway, thanks, Mark. Uh, best of luck to you. I know everything will go great and, and soon. Thank you. Okay, with that, we'll move to the mature audiences only. Boy, Mark was out of here. He's got things to do. Um, and he was the source to stop the broadcast, ladies and gentlemen. And I know there are many ladies among you. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.